take your Bible, please, and turn to 2 Kings chapter 22. 2 Kings chapter 22, and in just a moment, we're going to read a little bit from that particular text. And uh, before we do, let me say that when Dr. Lee Williams starts talking to you about telling Patterson stories, and then the president gets up to introduce me, I am understandably just a little bit ill at ease. I, I don't know what's coming. I know what could be, be coming. And to say the least, I was relieved by what did come uh, because, uh, unfortunately, I have uh, had a reputation, I guess, uh, in life of being a prankster. And um, I've spent much of my life, and I did review, I do use reverse psychology all the time, uh, such as uh, Dr. Ballard uh, uh, told you about in my office. I normally advise students not to come to Crystal College uh, and at Southeastern Seminary and at Southwestern Seminary. My general response was, whatever you do, don't come here. And, uh, of course, they were somewhat amazed that the president of the institution would take a view like that and would say, why not? And so, basically, what you do is to tell them all the things they're going to suffer for Christ's sake. And uh, if they are not really called of God, they won't come, and you're better off. But if they're really called of God, they love it. And they say, well, we want to go do that. Now, sometimes I got a little out of hand with it. There is a young man now who is pastor of First Baptist Church of Bossier City, Louisiana, um, by the name of uh, Brad Jerkovich. And Brad came to school at Southeastern Seminary, and he did a baccalaureate degree. And I heard uh, toward the end of his time there that uh, he was leaving with a BA and was going to go into evangelism. And, of course, I knew that Brad couldn't find Genesis in a Bible drill yet. And uh, so I was not happy with prospects of his leaving school. So I called him into the office, and he came in and sat down. He was glad to be in the president's office there, he thought. And uh, so uh, we got to talking a little bit, and I said, well, Brad, I hear you're going to graduate. Yes, I'm going to graduate. I said, well, wonderful. That's that's." Quite an achievement for a guy that never thought he'd go to school at all, and you're here, you got your BA, that's wonderful. And I said, what are you doing next? You're going into evangelism. Yes, got my evangelist association all together, and we're, we're going to go win the world for Christ. And I thought, yeah, you'll be calling me back in six months, wondering what on earth to do with yourself, so what's going to happen. And so we're not going to do that, And but I said, I'll tell you what, Brad, I said, uh, before you do anything else, I have an assignment for you. And he said, what's that? And I said, well, we got about three weeks left before school's out. And I said, I want you to carry this everywhere you go. I don't want to see you on campus anywhere without it. Go to class with it. Go to chapel with it. Any place you go, if you just go into your car, you take this with you. And I pulled out a child's sand bucket full of sand. And I handed it to him and had a cute little sand pail with it. And uh, he said, uh, he kind of laughed. He said, well, uh, uh, okay. Uh, he said, uh, could I ask the purpose of it? And I said, well, yes, uh, you may. 
I said, it's to remind you for the next three weeks how childish you are uh, in uh, failing to go any further with your education than a baccalaureate degree when the world is looking for somebody they can think is an expert at least and call an expert and they want to know something from, from God and uh, you think you're ready to unleash yourself on them. This is to remind you how childish you are. I said the sand in there is to remind you that the Apostle Paul, who was a graduate of the University of Tarsus with his baccalaureate degree and a graduate of the Jerusalem Theological Seminary under Gamaliel, where he had his MDiv, and, um, and when he got saved... He didn't unleash himself immediately on the world, but he went three years into the wilderness and rethought his theology in the seminary of the Lord. He did his PhD, and having completed that, only then did he unleash himself on the world. And I said, this just reminds you of how much smarter you are than the Apostle Paul that you are quite ready to unleash yourself with only a BA degree and that's all you've got and that's all you've thought and you've memorized a few things and you're ready to go and so you think you're ready. No, you're not at all, but this is remind you how smart you really are. Well, yeah, fortunately, Brad's got a good sense of humor, and so he carried it everywhere to class. And, of course, everybody had a great deal of fun at his expense. What's the child's sand pail for? And he'd tell them the truth. And so when three weeks were completed just for graduation, he brought it back to me. And uh, he had it all done up in kind of a trophy form. And, uh, and I've still got it at home. And uh, he said, I want to bring this back to you. And I said, well, you improved it, Brad. That's nice. And I said, uh, what are you going to do next? He said, I've enrolled in the uh, master's program here. I'm going to do an MDF. I'm staying here. And I said, well, wonderful, Brad. <laughs> so I've always believed that there is a way to get the message over even to the most hard-headed. And so if you're wondering what to do next, come see me. And uh, I'll be happy to help you along the way. Uh, my thanks and uh, appreciation to Dr. Williams and to the president for not telling anything more than they did, though. And um, I am grateful today to have the opportunity to point you to an unusual passage in God's Word, chapter 22 of uh, the book of 2 Kings. Now, let me set the stage for you just briefly. We are in the last days of the kingdom of Judah. Remember, when Solomon came to the end of his reign, he had a son named Rehoboam. And Rehoboam was a young man with uh, a whole lot of vision, and he wanted to do something great like his father had done, and David, uh, even before that, his grandfather. And so Rehoboam came to the throne, and he immediately had a committee. Watch out for committees. You will never find any place in God's Word where God ever appointed a committee. Those are almost universally done by men, and they almost universally come to the wrong conclusion. Uh, 
It's not that people on a committee can't think. They can, but when you put all their thoughts together, you always go to the least common denominator. And so it is very seldom really helpful. Well, they had a committee that came to Rehoboam, and they said, now, Rehoboam, your father has really been tough on us. He taxed us heavily, both in our time spent for the government and in our money spent for the government. And we need a respite. We gotta have a vacation. We need to do something for our families, for goodness sakes. Will you give us a little relief? Well, Rehoboam didn't know what to say to that. So he called a meeting of Solomon's wise old counselors. And they said, Rehoboam, they are telling you the honest truth. Your dad has pushed them to the brink. If you'll just be understanding with them and tell them, yeah, you got a little vacation coming here before we start asking you to do this, that, and the other, they're going to respond wonderfully well to you, and you'll be king over all of Israel. Well, he thought, I better get one more idea. So then he called for his younger counselors. Now, look. There's nothing wrong with being young. It's a good thing. You'll get over it. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's not a bad thing to be a young man or a young woman. It's a good thing uh, to be young. I look back and pine for those days when I was young enough to do pretty much whatever I felt like doing. And... Um, um, he was talking about uh, uh, the rent car place this morning, and the guy asked us, what you going to do? And I said, well, you noted I'm from Texas, so we just thought we'd knock off a couple of banks here today. <laughs> and uh, he looked a little surprised, but uh, he'll get over it. And uh, so uh, there was a day when might do something like that, and, and I can remember being young. It was a wonderful time, but... When you're young, there may be some liabilities, like there are definitely some liabilities when you get to be a thousand years old, like I am now. And uh, so uh, when you're young, one of them is you may not have real good judgment about how things come together. And so his younger counselors told him, look, you tell them, whereas your father chastised them with whips, you're going to chastise them with scorpions. That sounded pretty good to him. Sounded like a Donald Trump agenda, you know. Uh, go out there and whip them into shape. And, uh, and so, um, and by the way, don't take that as a political statement because the truth is the opposite. But be that as it may, uh, it sounded a little bit like Donald Trump agenda. And so uh, he went out there and he told the people that. He said, well, look, you think my father was tough on you when you see me? He chastised you with whips. I'm going to chastise you with scorpions. They said, you may chastise somebody with scorpions, but it won't be us, buddy. And 10 of the tribes broke off, and Israel is no longer unified but two. There is Judah with two tribes, and there is Israel, or the northern kingdom, with 10 tribes. And they brought a scoundrel back from Egypt who'd been exiled there. His name was Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and he became king over Israel. Israel never had a good king. Every king they had turned the people's hearts 
away from God. And as a result of that, God judged them. He said, you're not going to continue. You have failed me totally to keep my word and do my will. I will not uphold you any further. And in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom fell to the burgeoning Assyrian Empire. That began the diaspora, the dispersion of Israel, and they were strung out because the way Assyria did it, when they took a country, they took a portion of the population and put them over here, a portion of them put over there, a portion of them over here, a portion of them over here, and mix the populations up. By the time you're all mixed up, you can't even speak what your next door neighbor's language happens to be. And the consequence of it is, how can you f cause a rebellion against a king when you can't even speak your neighbor's language? And so it was pretty effective, and they just scattered them out. The diaspora had begun. Now, Judah, on the other hand, had some good kings and some wicked kings. But eventually, God said to Judah, you saw what I did to your sister Israel. I'm going to do the same thing to you because you have been ungrateful and unthankful to me and you have disobeyed me, and I'm going to judge you by the upstart Babylonian kingdom under Nebuchadnezzar. And sure enough, in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar came and surrounded the city. They capitulated, and uh, he took some of the finest young men, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael. You remember them? Better known as Shadrach by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. They took all of those. They made them eunuchs. Please just go ahead and kill me. I mean, give me a break. But they made them eunuchs and forced them into the service of the king, and they become eunuchs in the king's guard. And they are educated in all the ways of the Babylonians. But Israel, but Judah rebels again, and Nebuchadnezzar comes back again, this time in 598 B.C. And once again, Israel capitulates without a fight, or Judah capitulates without a fight. And this time, he takes away Ezekiel, our Old Testament prophet, and out of that captivity, you have that great 37th chapter of Ezekiel, the Valley of Dry Bones, which is not about conversion. It's fine for you to preach it like it's about conversion, as long as you know better, and as long as you tell your people that that's not the meaning. Conversion takes place in the same way that this takes place, but that's not about the conversion of an individual. That's about what God is going to do with Israel, that he still has a plan and a purpose for Israel that he's going to do in the last days. That's what 37th chapter in the Valley of Dry Bones is all about. Read it carefully and you'll see, and then go back and read chapter 36 of Ezekiel just before it, and you'll understand why God says he's going to do that. Not because he loves Israel more than he loves the Arab, for example, but for his great namesake, he's 
he's going to do something in the last days. Oh, what a wonderful chapter that is. So Ezekiel was taken away and a whole bunch of the people into captivity. But Judah rebels again. And we come now to chapter 22 and the last days of Judah's existence before judgment falls. In 586 B.C., Judah falls. And Nebuchadnezzar takes the whole city, removes everybody beyond the river to Babylon. And there they're in exile. Only people left in the land were our biblical prophet Jeremiah and a few of the jetsam and flotsam of humanity. The poor farmers are left behind. They're not taken. They're scared to death. And they do the only logical thing to do, they think, and that is leave and go to Egypt. And so that's what they do, taking Jeremiah against his desires, express will, judgment. This is a tough time. I mean, everybody knows God's judgment has fallen on Israel, on Judah. But look what happens in chapter 22, verse 1. Now, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned for 31 years in Jerusalem. In the midst of absolute hopelessness and despair, and the certainty of the impending judgment of God, God is going to do something great in Judah. And he's going to do it. Isn't it just like God? With an eight-year-old boy. <laughs> Isn't that just like God? Now look, listen to the pundits all around you today. America is in serious trouble. Doesn't matter whether it's CNN or Fox. Conclusion is the same. We're in terrible trouble. Now, they just disagree about what's causing the trouble, but they both agree we're in terrible trouble. Oh, yeah, it's a hopeless day. Hey, it is a wonderful day. I don't ever recall in all of my 78 years that I've been alive on the face of this earth a time when America was as open to the gospel as it is right this minute. That doesn't mean people are immediately open. Oftentimes they're waiting a friendship uh, development or something like that, but it's amazing how often they are readily open to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't even have to develop a friendship. You just have to tell them what's on your heart. People are aware of the fact that we're in trouble in America. And, and if it isn't COVID-19, it is the political situation. And if it isn't the political situation, it's the economic situation. Oh, oh, what am I going to do? What am I doing here in school? Hey, you're here in school because it's the safest place you can possibly be right now. It's better than a bunker somewhere. Getting ready for that movement of God that we're going to be a part of and you're going to see. I may not live see it. I may be watching down from heaven and uh, leaving here any day now at my advanced age. But the fact of the matter is that many of you are going to be a part of it and be able to see it. Remember, God starts a great revival with an eight-year-old boy 
in impossible circumstances, all right? Well, what's going to happen? Well, he became king, and he reigned for 31 years in Jerusalem. And uh, skip down to verse 37. Now, it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah that the king sent Shaphan the scribe, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, did you ever ask yourself, why does God include all those hard names in the Bible? What in the world? Is he just trying to trip me up? He succeeds often, if that's what he's up to. Well, it's in the Bible to remind you that you're not just reading a book of myth and fairy tale. You're reading an actual history of what actually transpired, what God actually did in the world. So all of them, he sent to the house of the Lord saying, go to Hilkiah the priest, uh, that he may give an account for the money that has been given to me for the house of God. So they go to Hilkiah and they talk to him. And in verse 7, look, however, there need be no accounting made of them for the money delivered into their hand because they deal faithfully. Uh, you don't need to have overseers with these guys. These guys are honest, and they're going to tell you what's actually happened. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, Oh my, I have found the book of the law of the house of the Lord. Can you imagine they've been operating all these years through his father Ammon and his grandfather and they don't even have the law of God. They don't know. They don't see a Bible. They don't know that there is one. Nobody knows there's a copy. Hilkiah is a good high priest. He's hidden one somewhere. And he says, look, I found the book of the law. And he gave it to Shaphan. Now look in verse 11. It happened that when the king heard the words of the book of the law, that he tore his clothes. And then the king commanded Hilkiah, the priest, and Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, um, Akbor, and the son of Micaiah, and uh, Shaphan, the scribe, and Isaiah, a servant of the king, saying, Go and inquire of the Lord for me, for the people and all of Judah concerning the words of this book that we have found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is amassed again, that is aroused against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. And the next two chapters tell the story. Go on and read it. You'll be blessed. All the reforms that Josiah institutes as a result of reading the word of the Lord. Revival begins with the discovery of the word of God. You know, it's been interesting to me through the years. Everybody knows I've been a great advocate of exposition or as some people call it, David Allen named it, text-driven preaching. I don't mind that either, whatever. I just call it telling folks what the Bible says. Matter of fact, that's really my definition of preaching. Preaching is helping your people understand the Word of God. That's a good sermon. You know, I have to get real technical. With definition there, you can just hang that one up. It'll, it'll do. 
But when you began to preach the word of the Lord, what else really is there to preach? Patterson's opinions? That, even if it went a little way, wouldn't go very far. And the point is that the only thing that's important to know is what God says about something. If I could know that and bring my life into conformity to that, I'd have a very different life. That's exactly what Josiah tries to do. And he does things that no other ruler did. Even other righteous rulers didn't remove the high places. How many times does that expression occur in 2 Kings? Yet they did not remove the high places. And they were a bloody generation. And what's God going to say about our generation in America? Are we not the bloodiest of all generations that have ever lived here? Count the number of abortions that we have had, the numbers of babies' blood innocently we have shed while still in the wombs of their mothers. And we're a bloody generation. But he stops the blood, the injustices of the land. Josiah presides over the greatest revival in the history of all of Israel. And it began with being responsive to God. I will never forget Rodney as long as I live. I met him in the country of Zambia in Africa. We were out looking at the Zambian seminary or the trees that they call the buildings. And uh, they had one building, I think, but mostly they were just meeting under the trees. So you're by comparison, your place here is palatial. Um, but uh, I met Rodney, and Rodney loved the Lord, and I got to talking to him, and I said, Rodney, did you ever think you might want to come and study in America for a little bit? And he said, oh, it would be a dream come true. He said, I, I can't believe you would ask. Well, I brought Rodney to America, and he completed a Ph.D. at Southwestern, has gone back to Zambia, is now president of the seminary there in Zambia. But the reason that my heart went out to him and that I invited him to come to Southwestern was this. Rodney told me a story. You see, the president of Zambia, a man by the name of Levi Mwanawasa, had become a believer. Now, that's pretty phenomenal once a man gets into leadership in a country. He doesn't normally see Christ, and it was kind of unusual. And I asked Rodney, I said, Rodney, how did that happen? And he said, well, he said, <clears throat> what happened to me was that, that I got a feeling in my heart that I think was the Lord. And the feeling suggested to me that I needed to go to Lusaka, the capital city, and I needed to witness to the president. And he said, I knew that wasn't possible, Brother Patterson. He said, I knew that I couldn't get in to see him. And yet, he said, every time I'd lie down at night, the thought would come back to me again. I finally decided to do the only reasonable thing I could think of to do. I finally decided to tell my wife. She is very pragmatic in her thinking, very understands the world very well, and she will correct me 
I could have told him to watch out for that, but I didn't know he'd done it. And uh, so he told his wife. And sure enough, she set the record straight. She looked at him and she said, Rodney, if God told you to do it, you better do it. You better get on the bus and go to Lusaka. He said, I was stunned. I just knew she'd tell me it was impractical and there's no way it could possibly happen and I shouldn't go. And so he said, I just didn't know what else to do. He said, I paid two months salary for a bus ticket and I went to Lusaka. He went up to the presidential residence. Later, I had the privilege of going there, Ms. Patterson with me. And, and uh, it's quite a place there in the middle of Africa with, uh, uh, with uh, antelopes running through the front yard and a and, uh, oh, wonderful place. And, and uh, so he went up to the gate and uh, was met by the guards. And one of them said, what do you want? And he said, I'm a country pastor from countryside. And, a uh, citizen of this country, though, and God has sent me here to have a conference with the president. And the man just kind of grinned at him, and he said, uh, do you have an appointment? And he said, no, I don't have an appointment. Well, they all just laughed him to scorn, and they said, uh, well, the president's very, very busy. Uh, uh, one of them said, let's humor this guy. And so they called in and told the president, the country pastor was there, did he want to see him? He didn't have an appointment. And the man held the phone and he said, uh, yes, sir. Uh, yeah, yes, sir, I do understand. Yeah, yes, sir, right away. He put the phone down, he looked at Rodney and he said, who are you really? And Rodney said, I told you, I'm a country pastor out here, citizen of this country, and God just sent me to see the president. He said, well, I don't believe you for one given moment. You must be somebody important. The president has agreed to see you. You've got five minutes, and I'm coming in with the dogs. And so he said, walk right down that hall there, and take a left at a certain place down the hall, and he'll meet you. And so Rodney walked down this palatial hall, and down the way, the president came out. Now, Levy Moana was a how I wish you could have known him. You're going to meet him when you get to heaven. He is quite a man. He would have to almost bend over coming in that door right there. He was about six foot six or seven. He weighed over 300 pounds, and there wasn't a powerful lot of fat in him. He was a powerful man. And uh, um, gray-headed, just looked like the king of the gods almost when he came in. And so he came and stood in the hall and welcomed Rodney. And they went into his office. A five-minute appointment became an hour and a half that he spent there with Rodney. And in the process of it, they knelt together behind the desk and Levi Mwanawasa gave his life to God. Who could believe it? It happened with nobody, a country pastor. In fact, what happened next almost scared Rodney to death. The president looked at him and he said, well, I guess I need to be baptized now. And Rodney said, 
oh, yes, uh, you do. Uh, we'll borrow a baptistry from uh, one of the churches here in Lusaka, and I'll baptize you. And he said, no, I want to be baptized in your church. You're the one that led me to Christ. And Rodney just panicked. He said, Mr. President, we would love to have you, but I told you I'm a country pastor. We don't have a building. We meet out under this huge broom tree, and all 200 of us gather there every Sunday, and that's the only church building we have. And, sir, we don't have a baptistry. We use a goat trough where we... Uh, dunk the goats to get them ready for the winter. And, sir, we just don't have a baptistry. And uh, to his amazement, the president said, fine, I'll be baptized in the goat trough. Well, Rodney started thinking about the size of that goat trough. <laughs> and and looking at that president, and he's thinking, no way, you, you may have stood the water up on end and crossed the Israelites through on dry ground, but this isn't going to happen. And no way this is going to happen, but the president was certain in his uh, decision, and what can you do when the president of the country says going to be some way, you got to do it. And so Rodney left and told his people all about it, and I've got the most beautiful film strip. I wish you could see it. The governor, the the president's entourage is arriving out there in the country, and there are the cars, the black limousines, one after another, and here Rodney's country people standing there, looking in amazement. They never dreamed they'd actually get to see their president in person. <laughs> well, that was the furthest thing from their imagination. And third car, the door opens, and the president crawls out, giant of a man, and he looks at the people, and he bows to them and greets them, and then he walks over, and he starts down the line, shaking hands with each of the men and each of the women. He just leaves his entourage behind, his, his, his people that are supposed to be taking care of his health. They're just amazed at what's going on, and they're standing there with their mouths open. He's over there in the people, shaking hands with his new congregation and getting acquainted with them. And they're, yeah, they're hardly saying a word. They can't believe they're shaking hands with their president. And so he finishes, and he walks over to the goat trough. And he looks. He shakes his head because he knows there's just hardly any way he's going to fit in there, but he's going to try. And so he takes his coat off, and he hands his coat to one of the people watching for him, loosens his tie, takes it off, hands it over there, and he climbs in that goat trough. And you watch Rodney Masona. He says, in obedience to the command of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and upon your public profession of faith in him as your Savior, I baptize you, my brother, my leader, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He lays him beneath the waters of the goat trough. 
And with the help of eight other men, <laughs> they get him up and get him out of there. Oh, my soul. Because God spoke to one man in an improbable situation. I was privileged to spend many hours after that with Levi Mwanawasa. I can tell you there is no question but that that president of Zambia knew the Lord and was so precious to the Lord, I'm sure that's why God said, I want you to come home to be with me in heaven. He took him home when he was only about 58. But God bless that man forever. And God bless Rodney Masona, who was obedient to the Lord. I want to close this morning just by challenging you not to forget Josiah, eight years old, in the presence of disaster. Do you live in presence of disaster? Yes, you do. You sure to do. Could you have found a better time to be alive? No, you couldn't. Couldn't have found a better time to be serving the Lord than right now. Don't listen to all the voices that tell you it's hopeless and helpless. You can't reach Vermont. You can't reach New England. Listen, greatest revival in history may be just around the corner right here because God used Josiah the eight-year-old. And so, he can use you. Would you bow with me? Lord, thank you today for so many things. But Lord, I just want to mention too, thank you for every professor in this precious school. And Lord, I pray that you would bless them a thousand times over for doing the unthinkable and the unbelievable. And Lord, I admit to you today that when Mark Ballard first mentioned this possibility to me, I told him, no, don't do it. You can't do it. It can't be done up there. I admit it to you, Lord. And I thank you that he listened to you and not me. I thank you, Lord, that he trusted you to do the unbelievable, and you've done it. And thank you for every professor who's a part of it. And then, Lord, thank you so much for every precious student. Lord, may they see, may they understand daily, every single day, the impossible circumstances under which Josiah worked. And yet, for over 30 years, you gave revival in the midst of the land. Dear God, do it again and begin here. In Jesus' name, amen.